Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest season of The Next Question with Katie Couric podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. Hear exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir, Going There, possible. Katie is a pack rat, and she has basically her own archive of sorts in her basements. Plus, Katie explores some of the big news stories she's covered over the decades and the people behind them, like Anita Hill. I thought I could just get back to my life, and that wasn't possible. It was not going to be the same. There's plenty of Katie's signature curiosity and no-holds-barred interviews, along with some of her own revealing answers. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city, and, you know, it, it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a third season of You and Me Both. When I started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. And here's what I know. We cannot get through this alone. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. This season, I'll be talking about the state of our democracy with experts and with people organizing on the ground. We'll draw inspiration from some amazing people like Olympic star Allison Felix and Grammy Award winner Brandi Carlisle. And we'll get into the hard stuff with writer Cheryl Strayed and my dear friend and colleague Huma Abedin. So join us, listen to you and me both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Sarah Wendell, and for close to 20 years, I've been a wildly recognized expert in the world of romance. And I'm Alicia Rye, best-selling author of over 20 romance novels. Introducing iHeart's new romance podcast, Love Struck Daily. Every day, we deliver a new love story straight to your headphones. Real-life love stories 100% guaranteed to bring all the feels. A little bit of sexy, a little bit of danger, and a lot of heart. Who doesn't need more love like this? Who wants to go on a first date with me on Instagram Live? Are you serious? Real-life fairy tale right there. Badass lady pirate Mary takes her shirt off. Let me show you pirate style. And it just unbuttoned her shirt <laughs> and tucked it, it off. <laughs> <laughs> and for goodness sakes, just kiss already. Listen to Love Struck Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm in love with you. I'm Steve Carell, and I played Michael Scott on The Office. Well, hello, everyone. Yes, it is time. It's the one you've been waiting for, I'm sure. Well, first of all, welcome to this week's episode of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. I I got ahead of myself. I could not be any more excited to present my guest today. Mr. Steve Carell. Now, Steve was the star of the 2007 comedy, Evan Almighty. (laughs) All right. No, but I mean, talk about someone who truly needs no introduction, which is probably a good thing because there's literally no way that I could put into words just how incredible Steve is, even though it's like my job. My entire job is just to put things into words, and I clearly can't. Um. Maybe this is the best way to explain it. During this conversation, the one you're about to hear, Steve basically said that it is so hard to talk about The Office without hyperbole, that he didn't want to be like, it's the greatest or, you know, whatever. But honestly, that is how I feel about Steve. It's really hard to talk about Steve without hyperbole because he truly is the absolute greatest. I could go on forever, and I I kind of do in this conversation. So let me just say this. I hope you enjoy this just as much as I did. Here he is, the incomparable Steve Carell. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before Oh my God! How are you? Oh, my God. It's been too long. I know. I was just saying to your producer. Yes. Where do you, you want me here? Yeah, I want you there. Okay. <clears throat> oh, my God. How was life? I mean. Sorry I'm late. I, I just, Please. I, no, I literally it. just saw, and I texted, I said, oh, he's 10 minutes late, but that's now. So, um, are you still doing the thing where you, because you bought the general store, right? Yeah. Is that, that's still your. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was somewhere in New York or something, and 
someone came up and had something for me to sign I, somewhere they knew it clearly I was going to be. And they had this thing. And I said, Oh, you got, you got Steve. I said, I don't, I don't normally see uh Steve. And he said, once a year you do a day. Is this true? <laughs> You're laughing. Kind of, once yeah. once yeah. a year you do a day where you sign at the general they, store. Well, they, every year this radio station does a little remote from the porch of the general store. Okay. And just to promote the store and my sister-in-law runs it and, you know, it's sort of a festive kickoff of summer thing. And I go and I do an interview with them on the porch and like 10, 15 people would show up and watch it. And then if anyone, you know, if anyone wanted an autograph or picture, I'd stay and I'd, I'd do that. So. This guy claimed he stayed for hours. It, it, this last year was, a okay. bit, there were a lot more people there. <laughs> right. Cause I think with the office, I think the fact that, I mean, I'm sure you've talked a lot to many people yes. about exactly that, but boy, in the past couple of years, yeah, that's changed. Just the, the tone of that has changed that, that little get together. I mean, you're a very, very fancy movie star now, but <laughs> how much like how much is it for you now, the office still? Oh, most of it. I mean, that's right. Yeah, I, I um I saw Creed and on Space Force I'm working with a bunch of office people. Yes. And I think everyone feels that same sort of it's just odd. It's odd that when we were doing the show, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way, we're sort of in a vacuum to a certain extent. I never got the sense that the show was a hit by any means or it was popular enough to keep it on the air, but we didn't have people hanging outside the sound stages. Very rarely. Yeah. Occasionally I mean, we'd have a bogey stop by. Very rare. We just pull that closer. Oh, to sure, 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 sure. No, I can no, lean in. Fine. No, um, no, you can move, move Very it incredibly rare did that ever happen. So, um, and we were out in the middle of nowhere shooting the thing. So I think none of us got a sense that, which was great because then it was just about doing the show and having fun and bonding and, and doing good work. Everyone was so committed to it, but yeah, in these past couple of years, I'll tell you when I really noticed it was when I was taking my daughter to her college, we, we did tours Yes, and, and this was two, two years ago now. I had no idea that it was, um, as popular on college campuses as it seems to have become. And it kind of freaked my daughter out a little bit right. because it became a bit of a thing. And, you know, she was fine. But I think that was the first, I mean, and that was just a couple of years ago, the first sense that I got that it it, it had changed. You know, that temperature had changed a bit. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, it's crazy because we were the number one scripted show on NBC for a long time. Were we? We were. I, I know. See, but I they never had got a nothing. sense of any of that. They had nothing. I guess. Yeah. But but it's so much bigger now. Yeah, it's it's definitely changed. And it's, you know, how can you not be happy about that? That people found it. Because I think when we were doing it, we all felt it was special. We all felt that there were there were elements of the show that I feel like people have, they see it um, more fully upon repeated viewing. Yeah. Well, it was complex and 
I think more more so than I think people assumed it was initially. Yeah. I don't know. I don't want to tout it too much because that's the other thing. I don't want to sit back and say, "Oh, you know, it's a, it's a classic and it's this and that and that's why people love it." I I'm I'm v- surprised, frankly, that it had the second life that it seems to have. Yeah. And, and people have we've talked about it. I've talked to Nancy about it, my wife, about why well, for starters, why was it able to stay on the air in the first place? Right. Because it was a remake of a very heralded show, and it did not get good reviews out of the block. And everyone, I remember before I auditioned, I was talking to Paul Rudd, and and I'd never seen the original one. And he asked what I was up to. This was around, I think it was right after Anchorman, I was going to audition. And uh, I told him I was going to audition for the American version of The Office. And he said, oh, don't do it. Oh, bad, <laughs> bad move, dude. I mean, it's never going to be as good. Right. Like what everybody was saying. Right. So it's, I think, a miracle that it was, that it even lasted, you know, that first, second season. I mean, it was oh. like, every, we'd get two episodes, then they'd move it up to six episodes. So the orders weren't, there wasn't a lot of confidence in the show for a long time. Yeah, my favorite review there's a gentleman by the name of David Bianculi. He wrote the following. This was after the pilot. Where Ricky Gervais let the boss's insecurity shine through, Steve Carell is all noise and stupidity. Like a sketch comedy character, not a real person. Not just foolish, but a fool. Yeah, he was never, I mean... He was never a fan of the show. He never was? No. You I know him. I don't know him personally. Oh, okay. But I, I know, I've read other things that he's written right. about the show, and it was, I don't know, I don't know who he wrote for. But that was, I, it wasn't just him. I no, think it was kind it was of a, a lot. I, it, that was pretty common. I think across the board, there was not a lot of critical love for the show. Which is interesting because I think we all just disagreed. I think we felt like we were onto something, and it wasn't the British version, and it it was something unto itself. It was based on all of the components that were making it up. I think Greg Daniels, man, one of I think his great talents is choosing people, choosing people who have chemistry, both professionally and personally. Everybody got along. I mean, people, we loved each other on that show. I mean, when I just walked in and saw you, I felt like crying. It it was such a special thing, I think, to all of us. And I think we were all very protective of it. And, you know, reviews, good, bad, it's it's okay. Totally. People have their own opinions and and they're entitled to them and I I you can't take any of that too seriously. But at the same time, I think we all had confidence that we were doing doing something good and doing something of value. From Diversity Day. Yeah. I remember yeah. sitting in that conference room going, if people give this thing a shot. Yeah. This is funny and it's doing something different. It's looking at the world outside in an interesting and complex way. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, how do you feel like the show reflected the outside world, you know, in terms of like diversity day or gay witch hunt or. Well, starting with the, 
the quality of our writing staff. Those first few seasons, especially before everyone became big deals and went off to do <laughs> right. their own shows. Right. I mean, that's what happens. You get you get these great people like Mindy Kaling and Mike Schur, and we had a ton of them. We had a really, really deep bench of writers. And when you have a bunch of people who are that funny and that smart, um, for me, the hardest part of it was servicing the script, making sure I didn't because I get I get dialogue every day and think I it, I can't screw this up because it and it and I knew it had to be delivered in in just the right way <laughs> right because or otherwise you're not servicing this great writing so I think the I think and I think we all felt that there was a responsibility to get it right because the writer the writing was so consistent in terms of how it reflected society but to do it in a way that wasn't too heavy handed and felt organic to what we were doing as characters. And that was the other great part of having run. I mean, I was there for seven years. You were there for nine to, to be able to trace the evolution of a character and have something in mind and be able to talk to the writers and talk to Greg Daniels and say, what if next season my character went in this direction? And, and then it happened. Um, and I think everyone trusted each other to a, such a such a degree that you know that was they were they were willing to you know not be too precious about yeah. anything, and I think it became better because of that. Greg told me something I did not know this. Maybe you knew this. I mean, obviously, one thing that he did that was unique was he sort of tried to obliterate the barriers between the writers' room and and the actors, yeah. and because he said for him this show was about behavior. And you can't write behavior. You can't write body posture. You can't write a specific look on your face, which I thought was so interesting. That's really smart. I know. I, I never heard that, but it completely makes sense. And the fact that so many of the writers were actors on the show, not just watching. Another thing I liked was that when we were on set, it was pretty much just us and the camera crew and the director all the time. So it felt as close to what we were supposed to be doing. Um, you know, it was as close to doing a documentary without actually doing one as it could feel. But yeah, having writers there and seeing how the actors work and maybe tweak a line or improvise and find something. And to have, a you know, to have Mindy, to have Paul, to have BJ all there not just as actors, but as fuel and, right. and having incredible suggestions or ideas or, or things to throw in, rewrites. I mean, I don't know how much footage there is on the cutting room floor, <laughs> but you could edit an entire season for sure. For sure. Of, of stories, whole storylines that were cut out that yeah. were hilarious and were just cut for time. Yeah. I mean- our scripts were long, and our first cuts of things, they had to be, what, 20 minutes? Yeah, 21, 20, 21, 21 22. Yeah. And they'd have 35-minute cuts, their first cut, 40-minute cuts. Sometimes they just split them in half, and we'd have two shows. Yeah. That happened a couple of times. Do you remember, was there anything for you that you recall that was cut? People ask, like, was there anything that was cut? Either a story or... I mean, I... There... 
No, I'm on. Yeah, you don't remember. I don't, I just don't know. I mean, I would see things in there and think, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember we shot that. That's right. I know. (laughs) I recently, we went back and watched the whole thing. Claire Scanlon told me the story, which I certainly did not remember, but there was an episode where Jim and Pam are fighting and the episode came in and it was really long and someone had the idea, well, let's just make it a silent fight. And it's just going to be about looks like we're not going to have them. We're going to mm-hmm. cut any exchange between the two of them. And it's, the episode is just going to exist as a silent fight throughout the whole thing. And at the very end, just as they're walking out to their car, they hold hands and it just like flips the whole thing. But the entire story that had been written and yeah. shot was just gone. That's and, such a great, that's a great move though. And probably so much more powerful than all the dialogue they could have said, you know, because that that passive aggressive, that subtle silent between couples can speak volumes. Not that I would have any personal knowledge of that. Oh no, 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 certainly, not, not. absolutely. I'm just saying. Why as a, would you as have? a writer no. and an actor? Yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's a great move, and I think they did stuff like that all the time. You know, those editor. We had some great, great people, and so much of the story obviously is told there. And I felt like our job was just to supply them with as much fodder for whatever it was going to become. But I didn't get precious about anything because I just knew, again, it's just a matter of trust. I trusted Greg and Dave and Claire, and I trusted everyone in the cast and all of those writers. That's such a great environment to work in when you just know, do your job. And they're going to take it and craft it into something that works. And I think everyone did that. Everyone. So the level, I, I don't think what people know necessarily is that as much, if not more than anything I've ever worked on, the universal level of commitment on that show yeah. across the board, actors, writers, crew, people were in and- it's rare, but I think we all sensed it. We all knew. And it's not like the show, we we were never a friends. We were never, we were always sort of the <laughs> the outcast, you know. Uh, ugly duckling we or were. the little engine that could, we, yes. For sure. Yes. And we got those kind of reviews. We We never, you know, there were never articles written about The Office back then. But I'm personally so proud of the fact that in- spite of all of the negativity that I think kind of surrounded it, at least at first, that group was completely committed. A hundred, I, I feel like we all sort of, it was like we came up together, which, which helped us form a very unique bond. I completely agree. The relationships between all of us. Um, and again, doing this other show that I'm doing now, just being able to work with, you know, five, six, seven people that I had worked with for seven years, what, 15 years ago. Yeah. It just, tra- it just goes from one thing to the other because there is, there is that commonality. There is that, that sense of we, we came up together. It's so hard to talk about it without hyperbole too, because I, I, totally. I find myself like, it's the great, you know, no. I, I don't want to, I don't want to tout it too much. I don't want to put too much emphasis on how how great we all think it was. No. But I mean, I 
you know, people can judge whatever the show is and however they like it. And Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? 
so he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Upon repeated viewings, they, you know, if they find all of this stuff in it, and that is great. But from a personal perspective, having worked on it was the joy. Like having these friendships and that work experience I knew when I was doing it that this was going it nothing was going to be better than this as a work experience. I didn't know whether it would be the best thing I'd ever be a part of or I knew it would be hard to top certainly but but just in terms of a personal experience and the rewards from that nothing will ever come close to it. Yeah. And I think you know for me certainly I don't want to go into hyperbole either but I think trying to at least examine the question of why, you know, we were so close. Maybe it's because we came up together. And to me, the, the other element was we had such a wide range of experience, you know, like rain and myself, for example, we were like doing checkoff the month before, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like that and improv and stand up and sort of all of those experiences. Bill has told me the story. Oh my God. I don't know if you've ever heard this. She got cast, she came in, and she was watching everybody improv. And she said, I can't do that. So the first season, she went on her way home, drove to the bookstore, and bought books on improv, and were reading books. She did? Yeah. I never knew that. I never knew that either. That's shocking to me, because I always thought she was... So pure, so good. Like one of the best improvisers of any of us, because it was, everything was completely honest and she just listened and she would just respond within character. That's what it is. Right. You know, that's, that's the crux of it. Wow. That's, I, I think all those things you say are true. I think the fact that Greg was able to cast people that it just, the chemistry was there. People genuinely cared about each other because there were there were times that people would be in the background for hours and just be seen like in profile while other scenes were taking place in the foreground and i never ever heard one complaint by anyone yeah. you know it was to me it was the true definition of an ensemble more than anything i think that's why it worked is because there were no i don't think anyone uh wanted to stick out in any way i think everyone just felt a joy in being part of that unit when we come back our executive producer ben silverman joins our unit for a conversation about the structure of the show and a little thing called the director sandwich it's a hard time for hiring so you need a hiring partner built for hard times. That's Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire 
all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From the creator of The Bright Sessions comes a new fiction podcast for all ages. Jump back to 1997 and follow Maxine Miles as she starts high school in the picturesque town of Hastings, New Hampshire. Fall is the season in which this small town shines. Apple cider, pumpkin patches, farmer's markets. It's idyllic for adults and boring for Max. But suddenly, Max's school year starts to look a bit more interesting when a fellow student vanishes. With the help of her misanthropic classmate, Ross, Max starts to look into the disappearance. Her investigation draws her deep into the dark woods around Hastings and even deeper into the secrets and lies that course through the veins of this sleepy town. This new YA mystery from writer-director Lauren Shippen is an audio drama with heart and wit that involves the audience in a way no fiction podcast ever has. Listen to Maxine Miles on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Have you ever felt depressed about work, only to have your dad be like, why are you so down? So you told him you hate your job, and he said, well, you better talk yourself out of it. And then you thought, hmm, I love to talk. I could host a podcast. And then you went to Spreaker from iHeart and started a podcast and got good at it, then monetized it, then quit your boring job, then told your dad, thanks for the advice. And he was like, well, that's not what I meant, and I don't understand what a podcast is, but you seem happy, so that's great, kiddo. You ever do that? Well, you could. At Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Ask your dad. You actually don't. I was talking to a couple of people just about, I had a French director I worked with for a while that he taught me that comedy exists off the beat. It happens either quicker or it takes longer that that pause, but did you never land it right on the beat? And I feel like our show did really well on that. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, for example, a bad joke that then you get a reaction from Jim, that then you get a reaction from somebody and the laugh could go sort of at any place. Yes. And there was a lot going on between the lines there. And the writers were aware of that. They were aware of the pauses. They were aware of like at the end of, was it, it was office Olympics. There's a scene we're all getting our like tin awards yeah. and yogurt metal lids, yeah. the yogurt, the yogurt yeah. lids. And I remember that turned into a really emotional moment for Michael Scott 
because someone was giving him an award and it was important in that moment. And I was talking to Greg about this and I don't think any of us realized until we started doing it that that scene was going to have that sort of emotional and comedic resonance because it wasn't scripted. It was just this moment where Jim looks at Michael and realizes this is a big deal and Michael starts to cry out of joy and pride and it it turned into something very different and i think part of the for for my character part of the trick was to not let on where the jokes were yeah because michael generally wouldn't he wouldn't know he wouldn't have an awareness that anything he was saying was funny unless he was trying to be funny so to try to mask the absurdity of the line within somebody just believing it and not commenting on it as an actor while you say it, not right. not leaning into the joke of the line. I think that was something that was really tricky. Did the production style help you do that at For all? For sure, the yeah. way that way that it that it wasn't as the production style helped everything um, because there wasn't that the, it wasn't intricate. The lighting took five minutes. And, right. and we all looked terrible all the time. <laughs> right. So there was no vanity involved Maybe either. that's why the networks didn't like us. Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, we all looked like real people. Yeah, we and we were up, we came out of the Baywatch age. You know, we were like, we, we were, were born of the last part. We were, no, but to th- kind of throw away all the vanity too was very, yes. you know, well, that yeah. was great because no one was worried about getting touched up all the time. <laughs> we were just kind of in our characters and doing our thing and that, not what the show is predicated on. Um, right. And so in that sense, I think it felt more like a documentary too. It lent to authenticity For and, sure. yeah, and reality. Yeah. And, and then the performance played out. I mean, the other level, just the camera as a character adds an entirely other layer of comedy that doesn't exist, even if you're just playing out a scene. In other words, your awareness as a character, you have your own behavior and your intention with this character, but you also are either playing to the camera yeah. or hiding from the camera. It's been the bane of my existence since I've left the office. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> d- d- I, I, oh, to revert to the other? To, in everything I've done since the office, at least once I will inadvertently do a take to the camera. Oh. And I do it, and then I think, why did I just do that? No, I, I do too. I mean, obviously we can't use it, <laughs> right? because we're not doing <laughs> right. a documentary wall, here. Right? Yeah, you just break that wall, but it's such a weird, it's a Your habit. Do you do it with the family at dinner? It, it's, <laughs> it's almost impossible to break. I'm sure on Foxcatcher, I did a take to the camera. <laughs> well, maybe not appropriate. Did you, did you say this or did Greg say this to you? There was some discussion about the essence of Michael Scott playing to the camera was Michael believing that if he did a really good job, that maybe Jennifer Aniston would go out with him. <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't. Do you, okay. I don't actually remember okay, that. Okay, no, that's fine. That sounds Some, good, though. Somebody said that, like, that early on. Yeah. I can't remember if it was Greg. He's beguiling but, the camera because yeah, his the hope is that, he gets discovered well, yeah, by the want, girl. You there. think you're funny. You think you're charming. You put your foot in it. Yeah. But you think that. You're like, oh, wasn't that a good one, Jennifer yeah. Aniston? Right, that's watching. the subtext. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, You know who I think was the I one of the best right off the bat was uh, Amy Adams. I remember when she came in to do her first episode because it's it's sort of a tricky thing that look to the camera and and how hard you play it or how subtly you play it. But she had it down. I remember that first episode. She 
because she was aware of the camera, but she played it in a very different way. Like, because she was an outsider, she didn't like, what are you work doing there. Here? Like, did you just record what I just said? There's like, I'd forgotten that you're there and now I know you're there. And there's like all this other stuff going on. So the camera, yeah, the camera really, you could always use it, you know, and it was for Michael, it was free reign, you know, because he could always be on. And when the camera was documenting things that were more vulnerable, that he didn't want the camera to see, uh, you know, you could show the fragility of the character as well and not wanting to be captured or kind of assuming a different character to cover the fragility that, you know, was intrinsic to him. So that camera as a character added, I think, a depth to all of the characters. It's a reflection, I think, of what you want the public to, to see, see as, as opposed yeah. to what is the the reality of the situation or the reality of the the person the layering of of all of that also as you were talking i was thinking one of the things that's so arresting now when you go into our show hey girlfriends it's me carol fisher i'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends in season one we told you about the murder of gail katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend bob at one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean 
at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In a world digitally of a thousand shows and you just see her, we feel black and white. You know, we feel almost sepia and like analog analog, you know in all of that and yet it has so much more of that honesty and connectivity but i think what that does is it frames the performance and that kind of thing it lets the face and the performance and the pathos and the comedy all play through character because it's not the bells and whistles and everything jumping around well so much of that was just the ensemble nature of it too that it's like it's like a great it's like an orchestra, you know, there to know when to fade back and allow the brass section to go, yes. you know, and it's their solo or it's the violins or it's, it's such a stupid analogy, but allowing everyone to shine and everyone to have their moment. I didn't feel like there were all these separate components bouncing off of each other. It was like this one group energy that moved through all of those years together and and it morphed into different shapes, but it was all, we couldn't lose any components of that it, it, because it morphed as a whole. It, it was a, I don't know, maybe that's getting too deep into it, but, no. but that's the way I felt about and it, that ensemble yes. is that everyone was so strong and so vital to the life of the whole thing. The show could shift on a dime based on one thing that one character introduces and it might be it might be a line that was scripted it might have been something improvised but everyone else would shift with it and you could feel it you know well like being a good interviewer on the radio you can tell there's a a give and take and allowing for space and it's a it's a real talent it's a real ability and i think all of that cast had that same ability to sense where it was all going where it should go next yes 
And yeah. it was, and that was so exciting. Yeah. It's funny too, because people talk and which is all true about the ensemble expanding as time went on. And we got into more stories of other characters and other characters were able to shine. That's true. And pretty much everybody did something in diversity day, which is the second episode. Yeah. And, you know, almost everybody has a joke or a moment. Um, it was being built early. And I think Ken and Greg, those guys, um, I don't know, do you remember the um, 30 minutes of busy work? Oh, early on? Yeah. Yeah. That That's so his thing. Right down to how he starts a scene. He doesn't say action. He says, go ahead. In the most in the most calm, inviting way. Go ahead. Yeah. I will say, like, to give him shit, it becomes funny to me because he has the it's not just the go ahead, it's the uh mm, go ahead. Like he like he always pretends as though he's about to say something yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. And then what you know, after the five hundredth time you go, Man, you're not you can't fool me anymore. Have <laughs> we ever talked anymore. about the director sandwich? No. Have you ever heard of this? No. I don't know where I heard this from, but it is like clockwork. It is the experience I've had on every show with every director. And I'm sure you've had the same experience. Okay. Okay. Director sandwich. The director sandwich. <laughs> the director sandwich. The first layer of bread is the first compliment. Director comes in. It's going great. We love it. Everybody back there loves what you're doing. The meat or the filling is the note. Maybe you could pick it up and, yes. um, and maybe a little more touch of energy. And the last piece of bread is the second compliment, but we love it. You're doing great. <laughs> just do what you're doing and we're right. and just have fun. Right. Every director does exactly the same it's thing. so right. That's so just, just, I mean, as soon as that's in your head, you will always be aware of that now. Like, oh, oh. okay. Now where, where's what, what, the, what, is, what really is he trying the, to say? What is the meat here? What is right. the, the note? The producer sandwich has no meat. Great job. See you guys Great in an job, hour. Yeah, yeah. See, you in <laughs> See you in Kaba. <laughs> do you, do you ever, this is sort of off topic, but it's now it's fascinating to me when you're in a scene and you get the first layer of bread. Great job. Really, really doing well. Um, Dave, and then turns to the other guy, right? And there's a there's a part of you that's like, whew, wasn't me. Was everything I must be doing okay? And then they give the meat to Dave. And then there's, but you know, it's really, it's really working well. And then it's take two. Director comes back again. Great job. Dave, uh, right? And then, uh, yes, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I've been Dave before, for sure. <laughs> we all have been Dave. We all don't want to be Dave, but we have all been Dave. Uh, but it's almost worse when you're not Dave, but no, it's, it's still- No, it's like, even worse oh, than that is God. when you are tanking a scene and then your scene partner, when you're trying to get it going again and try to figure out how you're going to- save your lousy performance your scene partner in a very gracious and lovely way says is there anything i can do to help <laughs> is there anything i can do from my side like oh no, oh, no. now now i'm really dave oh dave <laughs> that is so true and and they're just being nice they're being no like they're trying to can be, i say it can i give you something can i give else? you something more than i'm giving so yeah. your performance is adequate <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, 
Steve and I kick Ben out of the studio to get into the true psyche of Michael Scott. Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. I'm Jake Halpern, host of Deep Cover. Our new season is about a lawyer who helped the mob run Chicago. We controlled the courts. We controlled absolutely everything. He bribed judges and even helped a hitman walk free. Until one day when he started talking with the FBI and promised that he could take the mob down. I've spent the past year trying to figure out why he flipped and what he was really after. From my perspective, Bob was too good to be true. There's got to be something wrong with this. I wouldn't trust that guy. He looks like a little scumbag liar, stool pigeon. He looked like what he was, a rat. I can say with all certainty, I think he's a hero because he didn't have to do what he did, and he did it anyway. The moment I put the wire on the first time, my life was over. If it ever got out, they would kill me in a heartbeat. Listen to Deep Cover on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emmy Olea. On this podcast, I'm taking you on a search. A search for love. Emmy, 24, hardworking Latina, seeks cool, down-to-earth guy. Swipe, swipe, swipe. It's hard out there for a girl. To find Mr. Right, I've had to meet a lot of Mr. Wrongs. He'd invite me over to have dinner with his family. I knew he didn't tell them that I was transgender. Dating as a trans woman can be complicated, but there were other reasons I felt like I couldn't always be myself. He's asking me things about my family, like my mom's in prison. My grandmother was arrested for working with the Mexican drug cartel. This is Crumbs, my love story. It's a show about the things we settle for and the bits of ourselves that make us who we are. Listen to Crumbs as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There is a question I've never asked you. This is my memory, at least going back, right? You remember things differently. We would have a seven, eight-page conference room scene and we would come in to rehearse and you would like kind of flip your pages and I you weren't playing a part like the absent-minded professor but my that this was <laughs> like my right it was just like oh wait what are we here how oh okay I'm standing in the front of like the idea of like you had no idea what was going on and we would do it once maybe and be like okay do we have it okay good and you would go away, and it was like you would finish putting on your suit, and then we would start rolling, and it was all there. Was that intentional for you? Was, was there – no, I mean <laughs> – Well, to keep him, nothing, nothing was intentional. No, but I mean, like, were you – like, in retrospect, I started thinking, oh, as an improver, he wants it to be as fresh as possible. Though, at, at times, it also got annoying that you were attempting to bring – the group to a place where 
like you were trying to make them laugh. Was that intentional? Was that? Some, sometimes. I think we all tried to make each other laugh. Of course. I, yes. Um, in ter- boy, to me, there's nothing more boring than listening to myself talk about process. But No, but that's. But there, I, no, but I'm, well, I'm truly you, curious. I will tell. Well, just based on the page count every day and and also on how quickly lines changed we could have rewrites the morning of yes so i just didn't have time to memorize stuff the night before because right. they'd be you'd go home after 12 14 hours yeah, and yeah. i'd go to bed and wake up and and be in the next day and and sort of get into that day's work but i think it became fairly easy to remember stuff because of the the writing, that's because so true. I think they tuned into every character's voice, and they really wrote the dialogue within those voices. And it is infinitely easier to remember lines when they make sense within your character. So sometimes I would just have to look at these long, chunky scenes, and I put the blocks together in terms of okay, where are you know, where are kind of our joke beats and where are, you know, where are story beats and, and what's shoe leather and, and just kind of try to process that and then, then not think about it. Just kind of try to lock in the structure of it and then just play the scene. And that was the joy of, of how loose it all was when we got in there to shoot too, because we'd have two cameras covering everything. If you got something well once, you got it from two separate angles. You have cutting points, you know, an editor's dream, really, because right. everything was covered at least by two cameras. There was never, oh, so and so said something funny, but it was, you know, it was a single on somebody else. And then to try to go back and recreate whatever had happened, they were picking up a lot of stuff. And so when things things happen in real time, generally they were able to get it. Um, so there's a comfort in that too, knowing that it's not like you were going to have to generate it many, many times right. over. And you could make every take different. You didn't have to necessarily match what you did the first time. You could play with it. And as actors, we could all throw stuff in and and try a different, you know, beat for the ending or um, try some, you know, some different dialogue. But in terms of, yeah, those those long scenes, I just, I just didn't want to waste anybody's time either. Because mm. if I'd fumfered through all of those things and I tried to put enough pressure on myself to lock into it, you know, mm. and try to not make everybody... <laughs> Stay for 14 hours. (laughs) Right. Because I can't remember the big speech at the end of the thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's part of it. I mean, just just out of respect for everybody else. No, of course, of course. That was always just very impressive. That that's it. I'm not I'm not I'm not that's nice. No, I'm not I'm not saying anything nice. Um (laughs) but but no, it was uh I often wondered about that. I mean, Rain Wilson. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The two of you together <laughs> was so stupid. So stupid. So stupid, but so funny. I recently went back and watched, I went start to finish, 
Wow. I hadn't gone back at all since they aired. And just the dynamic between the two of you, it's like when you're in grade school and there's the cool kids, right? The Ryan and Jim, and you want to be friends with them. And then you've got the kind of slightly more nerdy friend of yours that wants to be, and you're like, just call me after school. Yeah. I'll play with you later because yeah. I'm trying to get in. I don't know. There was just something about the dynamic between you two. He called you a Picasso of improv. Oh my gosh. But I mean. Well, he, you know, I remember auditioning with Rain and we instantly were making each other laugh, like right from the start. And I'll crack up as much as anyone, but I, I try not to because I always feel like if I laugh, it's going to ruin that. Whatever they're doing is so funny. Right. And if I crack up, it's unusable. But there, there, there are times that I'm sure you can watch the show and just see tears welling in my eyes. That was one of the hardest, that was one of the hardest things was to not, you know. To not lose it. Rain, um, he's such an interesting, just an interesting human being. He's he's such a kind, he's such a dichotomy because he is he's an incredibly loving and kind and gentle. Yes. Like cares, truly truly cares. Someone who cares about the universe in a far-reaching way. Yes. And a much, much better person than I am. Or me. But at the same time, the biggest curmudgeon. <laughs> and like crass. Oh. Rude. Rude. <laughs> yes. Rude, like unfiltered honesty. And yes. Like, like sexual. But drag you. Yes. Just under, gross sexual oh, for no reason. But so, gosh, he's, he's a great guy. And. There's a scene toward the end when Dwight reads the letter of reference yes. from Michael Scott that just puts a, a, a pretty fine point on their relationship. After all of the, the stuff that Michael has put Dwight through, at his core, he just, he, he, lo he loves him yeah. and appreciates him and understands how loyal he had been that entire time and had at for the greater part of the series had really been his only advocate mm -hmm. and michael for sure understood that he didn't he, may, he might have resented it he might might have wanted more you know he could be very petty and uh, immature but but at the same time in that moment you know certainly acknowledges how important dwight is to him do you as an actor do you always search for the good and the character that you're portraying? Sure, I think you have to. I do too. Because otherwise you're just demonizing or judging the people that you're playing. And if you're judging a character that you're playing, you're going to play it differently. Mm -hmm. You don't want to editorialize about a, a character you're playing, I think. 100%, yeah. I, th I think Michael's decent, a, a decent dude with a lot of heart, but he's so based on his childhood, based on all sorts of things and things that he had lacked growing up, things that he was, I felt he was deprived of. He was so hungry for acceptance, but I don't think he had the strongest 
templates in the world to go by. But I think he also learned and evolved and um, became a better person along the way. And he was just a bit, a bit myopic and became more aware once he sort of was able to start stepping outside of himself and his own little eccentricities, he could see a little bit more about the world around him. Yeah. I think one of the things about Michael is he's actually, this, and in terms my interpretation of him, I feel like he would look out at all the people who worked with him and it's like he would put his foot in his mouth all the time. But in a lot of ways, I don't think he ever valued one person or type of person over any other. And in that way, I think he was a very pure character because he's very dumb in terms of political correctness and being appropriate in public. But at the same time, I don't, I just don't think there was hardness in his heart towards anyone. Yes, I and, agree with uh, that. He, I think a person with a, an enormously good, kind heart who lacked a great deal of information yeah. about the world around him and was as asleep in a woke world as you could be. <laughs> right, but trying his best. Trying his best and actually... There's a difference between being intolerant and being ignorant. And and sometimes intolerance and ignorance go hand in hand for sure. They they do. But I think he was a, a decent human being, really. Yeah. He just didn't get it all the time. Um when the show was happening, my mom and dad, they had friends. And they would say, Oh, we can't watch that show. Like that Michael Scott, he, I, he makes me too uncomfortable. I can't watch that. And I always felt that this was came from a place of, of deep insecurity or mm-hmm. like misogynistic or racist or homophobic feelings within themselves. Like that's why it was uncomfortable at times. Mm-hmm. And then you came out, uh, thanks a lot for saying this, I get asked about it all the time, <laughs> that the show could never be made now. This was, I, that's and, and, not exactly what I said. Okay, but. well, that's great because I have always said <clears throat> that I thought that Steve was misquoted in this Yeah, thing. that's not, I don't know. I don't know if it could be made now. Maybe it could. I, I guess my point was that, I think what I was trying to say was that that exact same show probably wouldn't be made today. But with the same components, the same actors, the same writers, if it were to come back, it would evolve into the 2020 version of what we did back then. I mean, I think the writing would be a bit different in today's climate, but I don't think it would be any less insightful. I don't think it would be any less smart or any less funny. It would just be different. Right. That's all. I, I just, oh, that's totally fair. And I do think it would be different. Yeah. I, and I think, I mean- Michael Scott would be much more tuned in to what it is to be woke. He would not understand it necessarily, but he would be, the comedy would be coming from his struggle to understand and fit into the world as we know it today, because the world as we knew it 15 years ago is different than it is today. But 
you know, you take that same character who is trying to speak the language of modern times. Right. That can be very funny, but it would just be different. It would just be a different set of rules for today. Right. But I don't know. I am. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's easy to say that you can't be funny. You can't do comedy this day and age. I I think that's a bit of a cop-out because, you know, every time you turn around, there is somebody coming up with something that is of the time and inventive and doesn't uh, shirk away from our responsibility to look in the mirror. I think it just, I think it just takes a level of intelligence to be able to do that. Yeah. Here's my other theory, just in terms of like why the show is so popular today and Mm -hmm. especially with younger people and me going back and watching it and it doesn't feel dated. Right. And Greg was so adamant about the realistic elements of the way people looked and that it felt lived in and the way that it shot. I feel like if maybe subconsciously people are, they obviously know it's not a documentary, but that it's just about this time and this place. Well, I think it's because of of what you said before. It's about behavior. It's about human behavior and human behavior is pretty universal and doesn't change a whole lot. You know, the question has gone around so often about why the resurgence in popularity, why is it, why does it seem to be more popular now than it was back then? But beyond that, why do 12 and 13 year olds and 10 year olds, why do they like it? That was always a shock to me. Shocker. Because when we were making the show, I thought, well, people who have worked in an office environment have a context. I can get it. I, you know, I, I think they'd have something that they could find in here. But the fact that not only, I mean, not even teenagers, but like, like preteens. Right. Apparently, Billie Eilish is a big fan and has been for years. And I got a note from her and we've corresponded a little bit. And, and it's shocking that, you know, these, this gender, God, I sound like I'm 80 years old, but these younger generations, right. and it almost seems to have been passed down from their older siblings too. I don't know. I, I don't I know. But, you know, I try not to even question it too much because it's a m- miracle that the show still gets the kind of attention that it does. I, I don't, when is, when are people going to get sick of it? Like when, I don't know. when, when does the shoe drop? And then it's just, ugh. when does the backlash start? That's my question. I don't know. Is that when, when, That's when this comes out? Probably. <laughs> the, actually, no, it's the week before. The week before, it's just done. Yes. You know what? I just, we all were so lucky. Oh, please. And I think that permeates the whole vibe of the show too, because we knew we were all hanging by a thread and we were just going to enjoy it. And no one, there was no cockiness at all. No. No arrogance. Everybody was just happy to be employed and working with this group and kind of clinging to each other. Because we also knew that this is a once in a lifetime conglomeration of people and let's enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, as an actor, 
to have an experience like that. You know, we're lucky if we just get to work. Right. And and get paid and make a living. Come on. <laughs> that's like, that's all any of us wanted. That's the other thing. That I think was baseline for everyone on that show. Really, all we wanted to do was make livings as actors. No, I think no one aspired to anything beyond that. And so there was complete contentment in in what we had there. But I would add to that 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 is what people wanted, was to make a living as an actor. Yeah. And at the same time, that we felt so lucky that we were actually able to make a living on something that was actually good and oh, that people yeah. cared about. Right. That then took it to like. I completely agree. Yeah. I, um, you're, you, you haven't died. Okay. I'm just going to say that. And it's very difficult for me to be overly, overly nice. Mm. But there is something that, that I need you to hear that, um, when Michael left and you left, you left at the same time, weirdly. Yeah. It, they coincided. They coincided. <laughs> it was so bizarre. It's like, where's Michael? <laughs> Steve left earlier today. But um, it needs to be acknowledged that, you know, for us, Michael Scott was an amazing creation. But you were equally as special. That's really nice of you to say. Um, well, it was a spe- it was a special group, and to find that dynamic, you know, actors, a TV show, you know, throwing all of that aside, just to have a group of people that you care so much about, and and you can't wait to see the next day. I tend to do that though, career wise. I tend to leave, and I've done this a few times. I left Second City when it just was. It was the best job in the world. I couldn't imagine it being any better. I was having the most fun of my life. I got to go. I got to go. I Because I don't want to get comfortable. And I did the same thing on The Daily Show. I was there for four years or so. And okay, this is perfect. And Nancy, my wife, we're both correspondents. This is fantastic. Love it. We're having a ball. And we both decided, up, oh, got to go. You know, we get, let's just keep it moving on and and i i sort of did the same thing on the office like it like you don't want it to and maybe it's maybe it's out of fear maybe maybe it's like you don't want it to turn a corner in any way you don't want it to be any in any way less than it ever was um so maybe that's maybe that's something about me that uh you know i should examine (laughs) see somebody about but it's so, so maybe it's a defense mechanism that way, but I was just so proud to be part of it. And it was very difficult for me to leave um, because I loved everybody. Um, I didn't start by asking this because it didn't occur to me. And then people started talking and I've been asking people, what was the greater loss? Was it Steve or was it? Michael Scott. And two stories have come up a number of times. One I haven't heard. I want to share this with you. Okay. Mike Schur. Um, he said this. There was a budgetary meeting, and they were trying to slash budget because they were always trying to slash the budget. And one of the things on the table was reducing the size of the cast. I can't remember who was there, but there were executives in the room. And Steve, who was a producer at the time, said, nope, nope, no, 
no, no. Like he said no like eight times in a row. It's not happening. That is not going to happen. And it just shut it down. It shut it down forever and no one ever brought it up again. And I think that everybody felt that from you, that the ensemble was so important to you. And, um, I don't even know if there's a question. Wow. That's, I, I, it was, it was a really, it, it was a very strong thing inside of me, that group. And I felt very protective of everybody, but I think everyone felt that way, you know, standing up to like, no, no one was going to put any one of us down in any way. But I got that sense from not just the cast, but the crew and the writers and all the producers. It, it again, it sounds like such a crock. And no, you, you know, it's, it's, I sound like I'm accepting a I know. award of That's some why sort. I said you've died. And it's not, it's no, it's not that, but it's, and look, it's part of it is that you said like, no, these were the guys who were here. This is our show. But can you imagine? No. I mean, can you imagine at that point? And I wasn't a producer until a few years in. We were down the road. That had to be like season four. Yeah. So, I mean, no, there's no way. Like yeah. what? No, it didn't make sense. Um, yeah. Unless people wanted to move on, unless they're- Sure, but, totally. But for finance, that's the other thing. The budgetary. Do you remember- the product integration yes. stuff that we had to go through. Oh, staple shredder. It was the staple shredder. It was chilies. The chilies thing. Oh man, that was a thorn in my side. I remember when one executive came in and said, "Hey, for budgetary reasons, we would like to partner up with some of these companies and do some product integration and." That is that. That's definitely the one time I feel like I raised my hand and said, "We can't." I'm very much against this because I think it it definitely changes the show. If we are serving a corporate master, there's no way the show will be the same. If we're putting in any sort of products, it's going to alter how we write the show, how we perform the show. I was dead set against it. And they they went ahead and did a couple things anyway, and and each time they were disasters. <laughs> they were <laughs> they were terrible. The chilies thing, Greg. Oh. I wasn't even going to bring that up to you, but what Greg talked about that he called you um, a great improver of life. He told the story about chilies coming and saying, "No, Pam can't be drunk." And he, Greg, he said he was full blown panicking. Yeah, like, we were was, like three days into this he, oh, shoot. Yeah. We were going to lose he, the whole episode. Yeah. And you said, no, well, and you just, that's what he was talking about. Like a life improv. <laughs> Here's the situation. Let me, let me, let me find the yes and or whatever. Um, yeah. We found a way out of it. Yeah. Um, do you have any specific memories that you want to share from? From your last day or a few days on set, oh the last episode. That oh, there. That was so. Well, for starters, six months before, I talked to Greg about how I wanted Michael to 
go out, like what I thought sort of a final arc would be. And the idea that I pitched was, you know, obviously he and Hollywood would be together. But I said specifically on his last day, I thought that there should be a party being planned, but that he should basically trick people into thinking he was leaving the next day. Because I just thought that that would be the most um, elegant representation of his growth as a human being. That he, because Michael lives to be celebrated. It's, it, you think that's all he wants. He wants to be the center of attention. Right. And he, he wants pats on the back. He wants people to think he's funny and charming and all of those things. But the fact that he'd walk away from his big tribute, his big send-off, and be able to, in a very personal way, say goodbye to each character, that to me felt like it would resonate. And it was almost more than I bargained for because that's what happened. I had scenes with everyone in the cast. And <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was emotional torture. Yeah. Because Im imagine <laughs> saying goodbye for a week. It wasn't, you know, right. see you later right. and you wave and you're you're out. No, it was like just fraught with emotion and and joy and sadness and nostalgia. But it was also really beautiful. Like I, I treasure it. I'd like treasure just doing that episode because it did allow me to kind of have a finality with everybody and and they were all different <laughs> like like i had one with toby that wasn't <laughs> wasn't wasn't very nostalgic all at right, all but right, very fitting right. of my but it, even in that certainly not as a character to be nostalgic but to kind of have that final scene with paul you know, I can't show the emotion that's actually weighted behind it as a human being for just me and Paul. Right. Uh, so th it was it was a dance, you know, it was tricky. But um, I remember the last take and we were shooting in the bullpen. We were shooting in the, the main set. And I started to feel like, uh-oh. I, I felt like, I think there are more people in the vicinity, because all I could see were the cast. Right. But then I just got the sense, you know, you just get a sense of like, okay, something. Something's th happening. It's got, something's <laughs> happening. Um, and as soon as that last take, the room just filled with people. And, you know, it was all the writers and crew. And and it it was, well, I mean, you were there. You, I, it was, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculously <laughs> emotional. Right. Um, someone told me leading back up to the finale of the series that why would Michael come back? Mm -hmm. And you said, well, if Dwight got married, is that true? I, I had told Greg, I just don't think it's a good idea because I felt like Michael's story had definitely ended and I was reticent about coming back because I didn't want that ending to be at all about Michael. Because you guys had two more really valuable seasons, and I just didn't feel like it was right for Michael's return to take anything away from that. That was everyone else's ending. Michael had already had his, so mm -hmm. I just didn't want to. But at the same time, I felt like I should 
out of respect for all of you guys and out of my love for everybody to, you know, to acknowledge the, uh, the ending of this thing. Mm -hmm. Your kids watch it? Never. No, come on. They've never watched it. And I completely get it. Like, why would you? That's just weird. You know, watch your dad do that thing. Really? Although, okay. So my daughter's a freshman, college. Yes. And and you said you going, well, that was became a thing because everyone's watched. She's totally cool with it. It's okay. not, you know, over that weirdness. And nobody makes a big deal of it at college. But taking a course in communications and the subject matter was <laughs> like the paradox of comedy or something. Then this is like a big lecture oh hall. right like a huge mass and they are studying an episode of the office which she's never seen <laughs> and, and she she texted us like that was really funny like thanks hon <laughs> but she said it's so weird she, she said i never thought i would be studying something that <laughs> you did that my father was in like for a course right it just, I just think that's hilarious how that has come around. Oh my gosh. So funny. Um, well, I, thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you. That was unceremonious. No. Terrible. Yeah. Will you get out actually? Hmm. I, no, seriously. I, um. So good to see you. It's truly so good. And <laughs> weirdly, it doesn't feel like that much time has passed. <laughs> I know. It's such a cliche, but it's no, I, so no, I mean, really, true. No. Like, I'll run into- You walked in, I'm like, oh, he is going to look really different now. <laughs> By the way, so, what does this mean? Whenever anyone walks in, they're like, you look exactly the same. Everyone looks exactly the same. To yeah. me. Right. But you know what? It's all- I have, have you ever been to a reunion, like a high school reunion? And no, you, I avoid people. You've at all never costs. gone to one. Um, no, I, I, I don't know that I have. You, no. it's, it's an interesting phenomenon because you might see some. I just went back to college for a reunion of my improv group of all oh, things. Right. It's the fortieth. It was the fortieth anniversary yes. of yes. the of the creation of this improv group. So I went back to celebrate that with them, and there were people I hadn't seen since college, and I graduated in eighty four. So. It had been a long, long time. And some people, like, when you see them, there's that immediate, oh, my, like, that right. is a very different looking person. And within 15 seconds, they look exactly like they did. Right. Because they are who they were. And it's, you immediately process back to, mm -hmm. you know, whoever they were at the time. Although you do look exactly the same. You really do. It's amazing. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. For coming in. Pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. I so appreciate it. And I, we may not see each other very often, but I value your friendship and I'm always so happy to watch you in anything that you're doing. Really. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yeah. It's so good to see you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. My Nancy's making French dip. Oh, French dip? I'm make some French dip tonight. <laughs> Please give her my best, too. Good oh Lord.
Oh, man. I don't know about you, but I could just start that right back over from the top. Ugh. Steve, my friend, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I mean, it's not like you have anything better to do. Or, like, a bunch of movies and TV shows to make. But still, thank you. And listeners, thank you for listening Let me know your thoughts on this episode in the reviews. It is so helpful for me and my team. And if you enjoyed listening to Steve, well, keep an eye out or or an an ear out because we will have him back on a future episode with a very special guest. Until then, we will have lots more interviews coming your way. So we will see you next week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Hello, this is Christina Hutchinson. And Corinne Fisher. We're thrilled to announce that our show, Guys We F*** the Anti-Slut-Shaming Podcast, is returning to wide release. That's right. Every Friday, we talk to one of our favorite comedians or an expert in the field of sexuality, love, and relationships. To hear what all the f***s are about, subscribe now. And listen to the Luminary original podcast, Guys We F*** starting January 21st on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Gangster Chronicles podcast is a weekly conversation that revolves around the underworld. From criminals and entertainers to victims of crime and law enforcement, we cover all facets of the game. Gangster Chronicles podcast doesn't glorify or promote illicit activities. We just discuss the ramifications and repercussions of these activities. Because after all, if you play gangster games, you are ultimately rewarded with gangster prizes. Our Heart Radio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find the Gangster Chronicles podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcast. On the latest season of the Next Question with Katie Couric podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. Hear exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir going there possible. Katie is a pack rat. And she has basically her own archive of sorts in her basements. Plus, Katie explores some of the big news stories she's covered over the decades and the people behind them, like Anita Hill. I thought I could just get back to my life, and that wasn't possible. It was not going to be the same. There's plenty of Katie's signature curiosity and no-holds-barred interviews, along with some of her own revealing answers. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city, and, you know, it, it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 